And welcome in. It's week four, Martin and Marlowe, Killcoin Conversation with Chuck, the coffee edition. We're rolling this one out on a Monday morning. Decided to wait and watch the long gone summer and give it a little. Chuck, this will be our Siskel and Ebert version, okay? So you have fully, you've viewed the film, correct? I viewed the film. I just finished watching it. I know I was supposed to tape this with you earlier. Last night, I really tried watching it. My wife and I watched the show Billions, though, so we have to watch that first because she loves it, and I want a, uh, a nice, happy household, so we watched that first, and then I tried watching Long Gone Summer last night. I watched probably 30 minutes, unfortunately fell asleep, but picked it up this morning, and I watched it, and I had nothing else to do, so I focused on it, and I got some good takes. All right. The great thing about this particular uh, episode is it will be baseball heavy, which is weird because there's no baseball going on. But we're going to get into it. You know, Flag Day has come and gone. Unfortunately for Klaibs, you know, that's usually our barometer where the Cardinals are going to be at Flag Day. We've got the DeWitt comments to Frankie Frank last week. And, of course, Long Gone Summer. So a lot of baseball talk here. Don't forget our great sponsors, Triad Bank. They're on the web at triadbanking.com. And also see them in person in Frontenac right there on Clayton Road. And also Marie de Villa, senior living, premier senior living right at the corner. Clayton and Weidman Road. Chuck, who brings us you today, if that's the proper way to phrase it? I'm sure it's not. Sure. As always, Corner Butcher in Fenton, one of my favorite spots. You got St. Louis Lawn Care. They do a great job in my yard, have for three years. Tim Jankerson also has the company St. Louis Equipment, Kennelwood Pet Resorts. Can't forget about them taking care of your pup and Kirkwood Pizzeria, the best pizza in the game. Oh, and by the way, we'll get into a deep discussion here, film review, baseball talk. The photo of you from Boston. Okay, so we were doing a lot of nostalgia. The one-year anniversary, the Blues went in the cup. <laughs> and we talked, I think episode two was all about the Boston trip and having a lot of fun. So Corey Miller of News Channel 5, giving Chuck a lot of credit for his hustle that night after game seven. None of the bars were open in Boston because the Bruins lose. And I don't remember the particulars, but Corey gives you all the credit for apparently telling the bartender we, we belong there, right? Is that How do you remember it? I don't think I deserve that much credit, but we Great. did get into that party. <laughs> we got into that party pretty late, and I think it was about to close down. The line was pretty long. We didn't belong there. They were getting close to the end in terms of drinks. And, of course, I go there having to get drinks for everybody. So I think I maneuvered my way to the bar in Baston, and I got a, I think I got a couple rounds. I think we had, what, five, six, seven people? So I think I – secured at least two rounds right at the end. Unfortunately, those Blues family members didn't get their last call, but we did, so it's all good. So I was going through photos from that, uh, well, from the whole Boston trip. Dave Sharp and I, a bunch of pictures when we were on the boat, and then I was trying to be funny and reply to Corey's uh, tweet, and the picture of you passed out is actually hold from on. the night before Game 7. Oh, see, and, fake news, no. typical. <laughs> Fake but it fit, it fit my narrative that we had been partying all night and you passed out. But I remember taking the picture at the time, and I was gonna. It was probably like two or three a.m. the night before. And I think we'd all gone out in that Warren Tavern in Charlestown, the old bar and everything. And I was telling a story. You and I were talking, and I was telling a story, and you fell asleep. So I took the picture, <laughs> and I was gonna, and I was gonna tweet it out that night. And you say, you know, something like shaking my head, trying to tell Chuck a story, he's not listening. But then I'm like, all right, for two things. It does look a little creepy. It's a picture of me taking a picture of you. But then also the, the joke would have been on me. Oh, Martin's telling a story and he 
somebody fell asleep. Shocking. Couldn't shut up. Anyway, so that picture was still in there. So I said, this is the perfect time to use it. And it's crazy. And, okay, so I didn't know it was from the night before. Let's be fair, though. I'm sure. I'm sure we had a couple drinks the night before. I wouldn't have passed out, though, because I didn't drink that much the night before. I'm well, sure we had... I'm sure we had one. <laughs> I'm sure we had one to four drinks, probably. But we're both big guys. That's like for a normal person. That's like one drink. But yes, after they won, I think we did get after it pretty good that night. Yeah, they were jumbos, I believe. All right, back jumbos. to the. Uh, so that's the story jumbos. of the photo. Back to the main discussion here. First of all, I love the nostalgia because in the summer of '98, I'd only been at Channel Two for one year. In fact, the summer of 97, I came here in July. McGuire came here in here in July of 97. And I was a reporter. And I was down there every day. And the demands, you know, and McGuire knows all about this, but every station thought they had a right to a really good McGuire interview, like every day. So we'd have an assistant news director who would say, hey, there's a new bill being passed in St. Charles that's, you know, keeping the kids safe. Could you ask McGuire about it? Could you ask McGuire about it? So I was down there regularly, and it was fun to just kind of just to relive it a little bit. I think the criticism that I've seen online is about the steroids kind of being buried or doing it at the end. My, my theory on this, and I interviewed A.J. Schnock, who's the local guy, Edwardsville, who, who was the filmmaker. But when I interviewed him, I had not seen in advance of the show. I think he put it towards the end strategically. I think what he was doing was reliving that summer, reliving that moment and how we experienced it. You know, the buildup, the tension, the excitement. And then, oh, by the way, we find out after the fact that it was tainted. I think he didn't start with that or put it in the middle because I think he was trying to give you the real life experience. Let's say you were a little kid and didn't know you would have experienced an entire summer. And then at the end would have been like, no, wait a minute. What was going on? Was there some steroid use? I, I, that's my gut as to why it came so late. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also had the benefit of basically because I didn't finish it last night. I woke up and I start reading Twitter and I see all the criticism that there wasn't enough PED talk. And then I watch it and I feel like the last about 20% was about the steroids element of, of 98. But also with these 30 for 30s, I mean, they can do a whole 30 for 30 on specifically steroids in baseball. And I'm sure they probably have, by the way, or they will in the future. But I agree with you because when we, when we lived through 1998, and I was 16 years old, we didn't know about the steroids era. We heard about the Andro that season, I remember. I remember that as a kid because I'm 16, and supplements were so big back then. People were taking creatine. I mean, I was in high school, and I knew people were taking steroids that played football and and wrestlers at my high school, but you didn't really think about it, which is funny when you look back because Mark McGuire had basically basketball muscles on his forearm, bicep, and shoulder. But I agree with you because this documentary was specifically about remembering the fun of 1998, and A.J. Schnock, he gave you the fun for 80% of the doc, and then the last 20% was basically what's happened afterwards regarding the steroids. And I think that was a, a fair balance in, in, in the two hours. And I have to say that my interest in this would have been way lower had McGuire not come back as the hitting coach. And I talked to Walt Jockety last week. We did the interview, then we talked for a little while. And I told him, I said, I didn't really like McGuire. I hated covering him. It was extremely difficult. In fact, watching 
from afar that summer, even with the Chicago media, like Sammy was having so much fun and every press conference was entertaining. I remember thinking at the time, God, that would be way more fun covering that guy pursuing the record. And McGuire was difficult. And I don't, I've always said that, and I'm sure none of us can relate to the pressure. But after his admission, whether you liked it entirely or not, when he sat down with Bob Costas, comes back to the Cardinals. Uh, he also did long-form interviews with myself and Rich Gould and Rennie and Savard. So he talked about it. When he came back, and this would have been while you were covering the Cardinals, as a hitting coach, he was a different guy. And Tony and Walt would always tell me, oh, he's a great guy, he's a great guy. And I'm like, well, I, I wouldn't know that because my experience with him was, for the most part, it was really difficult. And every, anybody who was around the team at that time would tell you that. But because he came back, had that second act, as it were, I kind of liked him better. It, I kind of had a semi-flip. Now, normally I hold a grudge and I never change my mind. And <laughs> my wife says that's not a badge of honor. That's not something you should brag about. But I rarely, like, will flip on it. And I did a semi-flip on him because of how he came back. And I think he was a different guy. And to me, what's weird is now, and the storyline's great because you have two very different people, American, Dominican, Cards, Cubs, one affable, one wants to be left alone. But now McGuire is kind of the guy who's available, who sit down and talk. And, and Sammy's kind of the one who's been in hiding. You know, it's almost like their roles flip. McGuire's been welcomed back with open arms, and Sammy's not welcome there. So there's a million storylines that, that make it a great story to tell. But here's some, here are my random. I'm going to give you my randoms, and you give me some of your favorite parts. All right. Did you notice Carl Malone watching batting yep. practice? Was that – did you see that part with Carl Malone? Was just, and I'm like, it almost goes without mention. I will never get tired of seeing Harry Carey's earpiece because it's ginormous. You know, Harry's got this – I mean, somebody could have found a better-fitting earpiece. It, I love seeing that. George Will has to be one of the few people that you can chiron and put in, in, in the, the graphic under his name. And it says, baseball historian, political commentator. How many people are baseball historian, political commentator? And then my other favorites were seeing longtime employees, C.J. Cherry, who was the traveling secretary for years, Joe Walsh, the team's head of security for many years, seeing those guys in there. Love that. What was your favorite part? Okay. Well, I'll get to my favorite in one second. I loved also seeing Brian Bartow, Cards PR guy, a young yep. Brian Bartow back in 1998. This is going to be very random. And it probably won't be entertaining to anyone listening except for you. But I laughed out loud because we joke all the time about in, in 2011, David Freeze hits the triple. We are in the media room. And, and just so everybody knows, I mean, I'm rooting for the Cardinals because I live in St. Louis. But I'm, I'm not a Cardinals fan growing up. So when David Freeze hit that, it wasn't Charlie the Cardinals fan reacting. It was Charlie, the sports fan, and just sense of a moment going, oh, my fucking God, this is amazing. So when David Freeze hit that triple, I stood up in the media room, and I just I said something. I couldn't believe it. And, of course, Katie Feeney, what was she, the media rep for the National League? Yeah, no, she, she obviously was, you know, like a PR person for the yes. league. And she conducted, okay. and as long as I was around the Cardinals every playoff, she would conduct – and sort of host all of the press conferences. Right, and she had the famous bonnet. So she kind of, she kind of shushed me. She kind of put me in my place, which I always thought was funny. And I, 
would make little jokes. R.I.P. Great woman. But uh, that moment, it always kind of bothered me that she shushed me during David Freeze 2011. So in the doc, there is a there is a scene where Maguire and Sosa are on the golf cart or on the the cart, basically going to the the group press conference, and you see Sosa walk up and you see Maguire walk up, and you can hear this on the boom mic. A younger Katie Feeney says something along the lines to Mark McGuire of, if you want to keep it short. And I just started laughing because here's the biggest story on earth. The biggest story on earth is 1998, the home run chase, where everybody in the world is talking about it. And the same woman that shushed me years later was telling Mark McGuire during this amazing joint press conference to keep it short. I just could not stop laughing when I saw that. I understand other people might not think it's funny, but with my experience, I just, I couldn't, I, I couldn't not just roll laughing. But doesn't that also speak to baseball, like not getting it? Like yes. from a league standpoint saying, hey, we got to milk this as best we can instead of saying, let's keep it short. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with, I thought your favorite part was going to be Stravenger, like leading yeah. off. A friend of the show, Brad Stravenger, who had his own show. I mean, he was ahead of his time with his own media empire, Sports Talk Weekly. And nobody dusts off their own. Or maybe J.C. Corcoran dusts off his own interviews more often. But Brad is always into his own archive. We need to get him on the show to find out how did, yeah. he, end, how did he end up in this thing. He must have submitted the footage and said, but anyway, Brad Stravenger, early presence in the film. Can I say, too? Is Brad Straubinger like sneaky 55 years old? I mean, I see these videos. He must have been doing these when he was 16. He He's was in, really he was really young doing this okay. stuff. But he he put a an interview on social media the other day. He's interviewing Mickey Mantle. I believe it was 1994. I'm thinking to myself, Mickey Mantle looks so healthy there. I look it up and he unfortunately passed away in 95. And I'm thinking to myself, because I'm 38 now, how old is Brad Straubinger? He must must be like 52, but he looks 35. I think he kind of had the Graham Benzinger early start, you know, inter like in high school. And I think they were like card shows in town. So he would go yeah. and get Johnny Bench and get yelled at or Mickey Mantle. But great to see Brad early on. Anytime I can hear and see Jack Buck, I love that. Uh, I will never understand in documentaries why the filmmakers are not mic'd. I'll never, because they ask questions. And it's almost like a, a style that they refuse to be. And, and at times they have to put the words on the screen because you can't hear the question. Yeah. And I think their goal is to not be part of it. Like they just want the answers to speak for themselves. But there are times they have to use the question. And I never understand that. And it's not AJ alone. They all do this where the person off camera asking the questions doesn't have a microphone on. Does that ever make sense? I tweeted about that during the last dance. And the fact that you always have to put the subtitles up. I feel like this one was actually better. Maybe they had a better microphone on the camera, but I, I feel like I heard AJ Schnock, if he was asking all those questions, much better. One more thing, too, about kind of my favorite or, or most memorable part is I felt sorry for Sammy Sosa because when I saw that video again, again, I'm 16 when I'm watching this, I kind of forgot how much fun he was. Just running around, smiling making jokes everybody knows what happened afterwards with the cork bat and he left the field early the one year i mean isn't it crazy we're such a forgiving society that sammy sosa can't go back to wrigley field and get his standing ovation i mean all these guys did steroids i'm not saying it was right but 
but we've forgiven all these guys. And I think the fact that Mark McGuire did have his second act, he gave back to the game as a coach. He certainly didn't need the money. And, and he's been more, more basically coming clean more so and saying what he did. I mean, even, even Sammy Sosa kind of shrugging his shoulders at the end, like, huh? Everybody did it. It was kind of funny, but it's like, really, you're not going to let Sammy Sosa back to Wrigley Field when he basically helped bring baseball back. Isn't that stupid? Yeah, I texted a Chicago friend last night who watched it, and and he loves the Cubs. And I said, just let Sammy come back. And he said, he's a clown. No need. And I'm like, I think think they're really split in Chicago. Personally, I think it'd be fun. And the guy was an ambassador for the game. Remember him even after 9-11 sprinting to right field with the flag? You know, he, he, he certainly made that race. If it had been just McGuire or even McGuire Griffey, it wouldn't have been the same. And it's, it's, it's worth noting how many people said it's going to be McGuire or Griffey's going to break that record. So I went back and looked. Sammy, the year before, hit 36. So nobody had it on the radar. McGuire hit 58 in his combo season of Oakland-St. Louis, and Sammy hit 36. So and, – and people who say they're a bunch of cheaters, I'll never – respect them I wouldn't argue with that either that's fine I have no problem with that but the game really was sort of a gym juicing mentality and not that everybody did it but it doesn't undo the script that played out you still to McGuire's credit you still had to hit that home run on that night if you wanted it in St. Louis with the Maris family there Fox picks up a Tuesday night game and televises it nationally I think the ESPN game on that Labor Day is still the highest-rated ESPN baseball game they've ever had. And McGuire homered to get 61. The next day, he hit 62. You still, despite whatever juicing was going on, you still had to hit the damn ball. And I remember on 62, I was in the Cubs locker room, and I interviewed Traxel as part of the, you know, the media scrum. And, I, and he just wasn't giving us anything. And he's in the documentary, for those who haven't seen it, so he obviously is tied to history, which was sort of my thought that night you're forever linked to history. And I said, well, is there anything, is there anything cool about being part of history? He, he turned into, there's nothing cool about giving up a home run, okay? Like, I think he's still a little pissed that he's associated with it. But sometimes you got to ask a stupid question to get an answer. McGuire was so difficult to drag stuff out of. And he took Billy Wagner, it was a walk-off. And he hit it into like, he almost hit it out of the damn stadium. He just crushed it. It was a Saturday day game. And I remember being in the locker room that day, and he's, he's just not giving us anything. And I said, so when you hit first base, are you are you giddy at all? And it was like the wussiest question ever. <laughs> like, he turned. I wish I could find the clip. Somebody's got it. He said, giddy? I don't turn giddy. And then <laughs> – it was really just a puss question. But then he gives this, like, 30-second answer. He's like, by the time I got to first, I could hear the crowd going crazy, and I was kind of floating around the bases, and it was fun, man. The place was going banana. He gives this, like, awesome soundbite after my initial question kind of got dusted off. So I don't think it's rewriting history. It's just sort of reliving how it happened, how much fun, how crazy it was, cutting into programming, hearing voices like Gary Miller on ESPN, seeing some of the old clips with SportsCenter. A young Rich Eisen, seeing people we know like Claiborne and Ackerman and Bernie. I mean, I just think for St. Louis especially, and I haven't seen the numbers yet, I'm sure it was extremely well viewed here. Maybe less so in Chicago just because they're so down on Sammy. And it was tilted to McGuire. It was a lot more about McGuire than Sosa. But he's the one who got to 62 first. 
and he he also hit 70. And how about the fact LaRusso made him play that last day? Wasn't that the total Tony move? Oh, absolutely. And and it was the right move as well. The other thing when I'm watching it, when you bring up Tony, is I just I don't care as much about the Hall of Fame anymore. And it's fun to talk about on the radio. So, like, anytime there's a conversation, should Pete Rose be in? Should the steroids guys be in? I'll have that conversation. But at the end of the day, I really don't care. It's a museum. I don't even think people go there anymore. I went there once back in the day as a kid, and I had a lot of fun. But when you see the Tony LaRussas of the world, who, by the way, I have all the respect in the world for Tony. But Tony, Tony was the manager of a lot of these steroids guys and benefited from them. And Tony's in the Hall of Fame. And Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame. Who benefited more as a commissioner than Bud Selig because of the steroids era? So to me, there's a lot of hypocrisy when so many people that benefited from the steroids guys are in if you're an executive or commissioner or manager, but the actual players aren't. And I think maybe my take has evolved on this, but right now, do you really care? I mean, do you care 15, 20, 25 years later if Mark McGuire, if Sammy Sosa are in the Baseball Hall of Fame? As you said, they still hit those home runs. And I will disagree with Mark McGuire. He doesn't hit 70 without PEDs. Now, could he maybe hit 62? I think that's a, a, a fair debate to have. There's no way he's hitting 70 clean, in my opinion. And it is comical to look at it. Now, like three years later, Sammy hits 64, and nobody even notices. Like it doesn't – it became, you know, a farce in terms of the numbers. And, and there are people who don't like hearing from Bob Costas, but he always frames it properly. You know, he always has the – assessment of the game I think accurately and says you know listen it came with a price and those numbers are forever I mean I think the numbers are forever tainted I even forget like Barry Bonds broke the McGuire record and like we don't even care anymore it's just and AJ Schnock his uh, quote to me I believe about the Maris family he said they believe their dad is still the rightful holder of the single season record and they said but they also really enjoyed that summer and it doesn't they still look back fondly on that summer and how the family was embraced. And it's a great tie-in that Mike Shannon happened to be best friends with Roger Maris. And all of that was playing out in St. Louis where Roger Maris finished his career. So if you haven't seen it by now, we should have said spoiler alert, clearly. True. And remember and to subscribe to this year uh, podcast, Chuck. We're getting it out now on all the different outlets. People can subscribe. That way it's delivered to you each Monday. We're going to expand and do some more things, maybe a college football segment, maybe – Friends of the show, I think, will be the future focus. Friends of the show. But let's get oh, yeah. into the uh, DeWitt comments, which happened on 590 The Fan, which I've been told is a radio station in town, apparently. And it was with uh, Frank. Still is. Still is? Okay. I've heard of it. I'll be, but, I'll be saying all these same comments again from 12 to 1. <laughs> but Bill DeWitt, Jr., the Cardinals owner, uh, it's always confusing, Jr. is the older one, but made the comments that Major League Baseball is not very profitable. And it just went crazy. It got players to react. Great you know, attention for Frank and for 590. My argument is that he didn't finish the sentence, that he should have said it's not that profitable compared to other industries in terms of their return. This is a guy who crunches numbers. People get mad at the Cardinals because they're so number-driven and analytical in their, you know, how they run their business. I honestly believe that he would say it's not compared to investment banking or you know, running, name a couple other companies where the return is higher. I think that's what he means. The Cardinals make plenty of money. Major League Baseball makes plenty of money. 
Does every team swim in cash? No. The Pirates are profitable, though, even though they're bad. I think the Marlins are the only team that Forbes had losing money in either 2018 or 2019. But neither side is going to win the argument. Like, hey, we're poor players. My $30 million is down, down to six. But I think in Bill DeWitt's mind, he's saying, yeah, compared to other businesses, it's not very profitable. Now, that said, I would advise him not to make the comment. <laughs> Uh, or, or frame it differently, I would say it's not as profitable as these players happen to believe. But I think it, was, it just came off at the worst possible time. But what, what if in his world he's looking at it and says, well, compared to other businesses, the return isn't that great? I, I think he could make that argument as a business person. Right. But that's like a Hamptons conversation that baseball fans, Joe, Joe baseball fan, especially – during the pandemic, when people's businesses have been just destroyed and whatever the correct number is, 35, 40 million people in unemployment, that comment does not play well. Yes, maybe, maybe he doesn't make as much as the Bobby Axelrods of the world in the hedge fund game, but I don't think, I don't think that type of comment plays very well with, with kind of normal baseball fans. And we should ask our guy, I think he's a sponsor, right? Triad Bank. We both bank at Triad with our guy, Jim Regna. I'm just, I'm just wondering... I'm, I'm actually very curious because we all know the numbers. Bill DeWitt Jr. and his group, they buy the Cardinals for $150 million back in 1995. Whatever the Forbes valuation, it's 2.2, but okay, whatever it is. If that's 1.8, if it's 2.4, let's just say it's $2 billion for a nice round number. Can he go to a bank? Can he and his group go to a bank like you and I and, and borrow 80% of that asset of the equity like you were if you were to take a loan off your house? Because, I mean, can he? I don't know the answer to that. But let's be honest. Bill DeWitt Jr. and his family and his group, they have an asset worth $2 billion. I think everybody understands they don't have $2 billion cash laying around, but they have something that's grown to be worth $2 billion. So I don't think that comment plays, plays very well at all. Well, and I also wonder if and I'm not carrying his water, but I'm saying, is he trying to argue not just as the Cardinals owner, but across the league, saying it's not as profitable as these players think it is. Let's look at what they're doing in Pittsburgh. Let's look at a few other more. It's not crazy profitable like they think it is. But again, that argument in 2020 with the pandemic, nobody wants to hear that. I, I do wonder, like, what's fair? Let's say, the, let's say the owner of a team, at the end of the day, you know, clears 70 to 80 million, which is what they said the Cardinals basically, after all their expenses, reinvestments, they clear 70 to 80. Is that a ton of money compared to one player, Kershaw, Trout, making 30 million? Like what's, what's reasonable? If a player can pocket 30 million, what should an owner be allowed to pocket without people being kind of outraged by the number? Then again, all of this is just ugly right now. And <laughs> Flag day has come and gone. There's no baseball. They really mm -hmm. missed the moment to use a Tonyism from back in the day, because now doesn't everybody just have a real distaste? Like when they play sixty or fifty or seventy, whatever games they play, we'll get into the baseball when it happens, and we'll probably have some fun with it. But isn't there just a real distaste about the whole game right now? One hundred percent. And and I would love to be able to see. It'll be hard to crunch the numbers next year on what the owners and players did during a pandemic where they negotiated publicly where nobody thinks they look good neither side looks good even if you take one side for example i'm with the players here i feel like the owners when you boom 
for 10 years, do they give that money back? We always, we always talk about, and this is more of a macro conversation about business. We always talk about business owners taking the risk. And I 100% agree with that. And in the good years, you reap the rewards. That was the last decade or so in Major League Baseball. So now that the owners are having a bad year, they have to socialize those losses. Where, where's the risk there? That, that's what I'm saying why I side with the players. But I would love to know how all of this negativity out there in the court of public opinion affects attendance next year. Now, let's be real. We'll probably still be in a recession. I think coronavirus, the economic effects are going to linger for a long time, maybe a year, year and a half. Who, who knows? I mean, who knows? So I think less people would probably be coming to baseball games next year anyway because they have less disposable income. But I think there's a lot of people that will be turned off again, just like they were in 94, 95 about baseball. You know, we're doing it again. Nobody learned from their mistakes from, from 25 years ago. Chuck, it's been fun. I think we passed the 20-minute rule because everything in St. Louis takes 20 minutes. Well, this Correct. took a little bit longer. So hopefully people enjoyed the ride. You can also email the show, martinandmarlow at gmail.com. martinandmarlow at gmail.com. Look for new episodes every Monday. We'll be adding guests to the format. And I think Brad Stromager, he may have to be the first guest by his own request, but also his appearance in long gone summer. I want to get into, at some point, with this DeWitt comments, the baseball animosity, we got to, we got to do a deep dive into Jack Flaherty. And you and I have talked oh, yeah. about this, how, how outspoken he is. And isn't it going to be interesting where Cardinal fans don't really typically want players who are too outspoken? You know, you can get the Tommy Pham treatment where they'll pack your bags quickly, and Flaherty's not going to go quietly. I. I can't wait to discuss. Chuck, great conversation, buddy. We'll do it again. All right, buddy.